It's a worldwide pollution problem, and every time it rains, it gets worse. Plastic garbage of all kinds litters our streets, our neighborhoods, parks, and playgrounds. Companies sell their products in plastic packaging and then expect us to clean it up, or pay to clean it up. They infuse their packaging with toxic chemicals and then expect someone else to figure out how to get the toxic chemicals out. They hire powerful lobbyists to make sure they don't have to pay a cent for any cleanup. They seem content to let taxpayers foot the entire bill for the problem they created while they make millions or even billions in profit. This is how we are dealing with the massive worldwide plastic pollution problem. This is why the problem gets worse day after day. And this is Green Street. Again and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of doctors, public health officials, scientists, government regulators, reporters, authors, activists, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a little more about what is really going on around you, what you can do about it, and how you and your family can live a better, safer, healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Go into a grocery store today and take a look around. Try to find items that are not wrapped in plastic. All of your juices, sodas, and water come in plastic, of course. Lots of veggies come in a styrofoam tray covered with plastic. Most meat comes wrapped in plastic. Cardboard boxes of cereal and crackers have plastic bags inside. Baby food comes in plastic jars. And don't forget about laundry detergent. The giant orange and blue jugs of thick plastic fill the aisles. Or the next time you get your coffee from Starbucks or Dunkin', think about the plastic lid. Or if it's an ice drink, the clear plastic container, the plastic lid, the plastic straw. What happens to that stuff? Coke, Pepsi, and other soft drink retailers are all over the airwaves touting their new plan to recycle their plastic beverage bottles. You know, that get every bottle back campaign? But odds are good they'll spend more money on advertising than the program itself. What do they have to lose? There's no government mandate to do it. There's no law that says they have to. At least, there isn't such a law right now. But just wait. There's a new sheriff in town, and she's determined to make sure these companies pay at least a portion of the cost of cleaning up their mess. Former EPA Administrator for Region 2, Judith Inc., will join us later on Green Street to talk about extended producer responsibility and how local and state governments can take the lead in helping slow down the rate of this massive worldwide plastic pollution problem. That's all coming up in just a few minutes here on Green Street. But first, here's Patty Wood with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Some really interesting uh, articles today. So the first one was published in Grist, and it was written by Joseph Winters, and the title is A Global Plastics Treaty is on the Way. World leaders concluded the fifth United Nations Environmental Assembly on Wednesday with a promise to the world. By 2024, delegates will broker a binding international treaty addressing the full life cycle of plastics, including its production and design. 
The United Nations Conference in Nairobi, Kenya, has been branded the most significant international environmental negotiation since 2015, when world leaders met to broker the Paris Agreement. For years, scientists, policymakers, and environmental advocates have urgently called for a comprehensive solution to the plastic pollution crisis, which, like climate change, is already exerting a hefty toll on people and the natural world. Delegates at this week's UN conference agreed to address the problem through a holistic life cycle approach, meaning the treaty they negotiate over the next two years could limit the amount of plastic the world is allowed to produce. There are some caveats. Although the treaty itself will be binding, the resolution contains language allowing for binding and non-binding elements, and nations may have a lot of discretion over how they adhere to the treaty's terms. Still, the treaty may prompt UN member states to adopt far-reaching measures to curb plastic pollution, potentially including national production caps or market-based mechanisms, like extender producer responsibility laws that force plastic manufacturers to pay for the pollution they create. This overall approach is in line with what scientists and environmental advocates have long stressed is the best way to curb pollution from plastics. An intergovernmental negotiating committee still has to hammer out most of the treaty's important details, but environmental advocates the world over applauded the UN resolution. Quote, it's a monumental and inspiring act, said Graham Forbes, Plastics Global Project Leader for Greenpeace. They've set out a powerful intention to tackle the pollution crisis. That's what the world needs, end quote. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, it's a small, you know, I understand it's not perfect and there's problems with it. But finally, somebody's taking a step to say to these plastic manufacturers, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to continue to do this. Yeah, this is all about source reduction. The extended producer responsibility yeah. laws, which are just beginning to trickle in, you know, especially here in the United States. We've yeah. got a couple of states that have done something. I don't think anybody has done it right yet, but we're, right. we're going to talk about that later in our show. We sure are. Um, but anyway, there you go. Good. Yeah. Okay. What else? Okay. So the next one is also a rather short article. Uh, this was published in the Indiana Environmental Reporter, written by Timberly Faree, and the title is Indiana University Study Links Lead Exposure to Juvenile Delinquency. In the first direct analysis of its kind, a study by Indiana University researchers has found a link between lead in drinking water, specifically from private wells, and juvenile delinquency. Quote, there's not been a direct analysis on lead exposure and children's outcomes later in life before. This is the first, explained Jackie McDonald Gibson, author of the study and chair of the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Indiana University School of Public Health, Bloomington. The study, published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, found that children who get their water from private wells before age six have higher blood lead levels and, as a result, have a 21% higher risk of being reported for any delinquency after age 14, and a 38% increased risk of having a record for a serious complaint, such as felony property or weapons offenses and misdemeanor assaults. Quote, it's been known for some time now that lead is a neurotoxin. It interferes with young children's developing brains, Gibson told Indiana Environmental Reporter. Exposure to lead, especially before the age of seven, leads to permanent cognitive damage. It also lowers IQ, negatively affects earning potential, and increases the risk for behavioral problems and criminal activity. 
Research results also highlight the need to prevent lead leaching from well components, fixtures, and plumbing in the 13% of U.S. households relying on private well water. Quote, children with private well water are more likely to be exposed to lead because most private wells don't have corrosion control systems in place, Gibson said. We also found that blood lead levels were about 11% higher in children who received drinking water from wells, end quote. Domestic wells are not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act and are rarely tested for lead or treated to prevent lead dissolution from household plumbing and fixtures. If you have private well water, it's important to test it for lead. You can also flush the tap for a few minutes before using your water. Household water filters can be effective but need to be regularly maintained. Community water supplies are supposed to be protected with corrosion inhibitors and through use of lead monitoring. When utilities do their job, children are protected, but not all utilities are in compliance. Gibson also said she was surprised by the research's strength of association and added that it confirms lead exposure, even at low levels, can be very damaging. Yeah, I would certainly say so. That's a pretty alarming statistic. Yeah, but what's interesting to me is that this is a brand new study, and they're saying that this is the first study. But I remember Herb Needleman, Dr. Needleman, who was doing this research decades ago. On behavior associated with lead exposure? And found that there was, a, there was a link between high lead levels in children's blood and, and delinquency later mm. in life. Well, of course, lead is, you know, in the news now because of what happened in, uh, in, in, Flint. in Flint, Michigan. Right. Yeah, we had that great show with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, good. What else? The last one is very timely. This was published in Wired, uh, written by Gregory Barber and Matt Simon, and it is entitled, Ukraine is in an environmental crisis, too. In the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, the ground has been behaving strangely. In some places, it is sinking. Elsewhere, it heaves, bulging upward, according to satellite data. Before it became a conflict zone, the Donbas region has long been Ukraine's coal country, and the earth is riddled with hundreds of miles of tunnels underneath cities, factories, and farms, many of them abandoned. Recently, those shafts have been flooding, causing the surface to shift and carrying toxic chemicals from abandoned industrial facilities that now threaten the region's water supply. One of those mines, the site of a nuclear test in the 1970s, remains potentially radioactive. Ukrainian scientists have warned that the risks to the region could be more deep and dangerous than Chernobyl. The environment has also been wielded as a weapon of war in Ukraine, such as when militants shelled chlorine stocks at a wastewater plant, threatening to ruin the local water supply. Much of the fighting is now occurring in urban areas like Kiev, where industrial facilities, military installations, and radioactive waste repositories have come under fire from Russian planes and artillery. Those weapons have the potential to leave not only immediate destruction, but a longer tail of polluted air and water that will be felt by nearby residents long after the conflict subsides. Since the mid-1990s, the United Nations has tried to reel in the environmental harms in conflict zones and hasten cleanup in the aftermath. But some countries, including Russia, have pushed back on setting up guardrails. As the conflict drags on, seemingly longer than Russian forces anticipated, there is fear that as the Russian military gets more desperate, the environmental damage will not just be collateral, but a tool of force against Ukrainians. 
A heavily industrialized country, Ukraine already has a baseline of bad air. They were already one of the worst air quality areas in Europe. But if some of these industrial sites are being targeted or accidentally hit and burning, that's going to put a lot of toxic substances into the air. This air pollution will be wildly complex due to the nature of modern war. Missiles, shelling, and tank rounds are chewing up pretty much the entirety of the built environment. Explosions fling a wide array of materials into the air, from heavy metals in industrial sites to the concrete cables and piping in roads to asbestos from buildings. And that's to say nothing of the heavy metals and various carcinogens in the explosives themselves. Put another way, soldiers and civilians are inhaling a much more complicated variety of air pollution than, say, the exhaust from a highway. Quote, anytime you destroy something with the modern chemicals that we use, not just the petrochemicals, but asbestos, all of these chemicals, there will be toxics put into the atmosphere, including lead and mercury, says Netta Crawford, collector of the Costs of War program at Boston University. It's a toxic stew that's been aerosolized. And then, of course, some of that will get into the soil and groundwater. It's certainly not helping matters that as the war disrupts electricity generation across Ukraine, people may switch to backup generators running on diesel, adding those fumes to the mix, end quote. In the short term, Ukrainians might see an increase in asthma exacerbation, and the elderly might experience more pneumonia and acute bronchitis. Pollution raises the risk of infectious respiratory diseases. That's why you see an association with COVID rates and wildfires or COVID rates and air pollution. Keep in mind that the world is still embroiled in a pandemic and only one third of Ukraine's population is vaccinated. Longer term, scientists know that the more you're exposed to air pollution, the shorter your life expectancy. In Ukraine, observers say the destruction to the environment is likely to get worse before it gets better especially as Russian efforts to take the country's major cities escalate. The increasing attacks on civilian infrastructure over the past several days indicate that these conditions will exponentially worsen. In the midst of war, environmental damage is difficult to track and measure, like explosions at an oil reservoir in a town just outside of Kiev, which has been spewing unknown toxicants into the air. The government is working on identifying key environmental issues and reestablishing air pollution monitoring systems. But the full toll will likely only become clearer in the aftermath of the war. And then the question is what will be done about it. One thing we can say for certain is that things don't get cleaned up after conflicts pretty much anywhere. In the Donbass region, it's uncertain whether whoever takes control will have the political will and funding to prevent the creeping disaster caused by the flooded mines. Governments can balk at the often extraordinary expense of removing toxic materials from soil and water. Health systems reeling from handling the casualties of war may struggle to keep up with the chronic health problems that follow. And once the bombs stop falling on Ukraine, there is another kind of war ahead. <laughs> You know, what do you say about this? I mean, war is such a horrible thing, and it has so many tentacles that reach in so many directions. You know, people getting killed, people losing their fathers, their mothers, brothers, aunts, uncles, and now the people left behind will be saddled with this environmental nightmare affecting their health forever. Generations. Generations. Mm. All right, well, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. 
As Patty mentioned in her news block, there's a new global treaty that was just signed that will, for the first time, regulate the production, use, and disposal of plastic. Of course, it remains to be seen how it will be implemented and enforced, but it's a great first step. Formally recognizing the ecological damage being inflicted on the planet by giant waste streams of used plastic. The plastic industry dates back to the early 1900s, but it wasn't until the 1950s that the mass production of plastics really began. Since then, more than 9 billion metric tons of plastic materials have been produced worldwide. The global plastic market was valued at $580 billion in 2020, and it's expected to experience considerable growth over the next decade. In other words, a lot of companies and their investors are making a lot of money producing plastic but none of those companies are spending significant amounts of money to clean up their mess. Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR, is not a new concept, but it's gaining a lot of momentum these days as taxpayers begin to seriously object to footing the bill for these giant and highly profitable companies that are polluting the world. EPR bills are beginning to appear in states across the country. Some bills, written and sponsored by the plastics industry itself, are, as you might expect, pretty toothless, really don't do anything to fix the problem, even though they may sound ambitious and good. Other bills actually have teeth and can really make a difference, but those bills are hard to get passed, since the plastic industry spends a lot of money on lobbyists and campaign contributions. Today, we are delighted to welcome back to Green Street former EPA Administrator for Region 2 and our colleague and friend Judith Inc., whose new organization, Beyond Plastics, is really moving the needle on extended producer responsibility as it applies to plastic. Patty and I spoke with Judith last week, and we started by asking her how she decided to dedicate herself to the plastic issue. Here's our interview with Judith Inc. I gave this a lot of thought. The good thing about being appointed by a president to your job is you know when your last day on the job is. Um, You leave when the president leaves, unless you screw up and you get fired earlier, which remarkably didn't happen with me. So I knew that President Obama's final day in office would be that fateful January day. And um, I had been researching plastic pollution issues And it really um, struck me as one of the most important issues involving environmental justice and sustainability. So, for instance, the United States has 4% of the world's population, but we use 24% of the world's natural resources. Uh, A lot of that toward plastic production. We use 17% of the world's energy, and then not surprisingly, we generate about 12% of the world's solid waste. Um, plastics, when I started working on this intently, was not getting enough attention. I felt like there was an unmet need. And I like to go where others are not. So I was quite tempted to work on climate change almost exclusively. And we have a ton of work to do on climate change, but there are a lot of people working on climate change. There were not a lot of public policy experts working on plastics, and that's what I consider myself. And so it was, you know, a bit of a crapshoot. I didn't know if I would actually be able to raise funds to keep a small nonprofit going. Uh, I didn't know if there'd be increased interest, uh, but I established my organization Beyond Plastics just over three years ago. Uh, Beyondplastics.org is our website. And we're slowly growing. 
and we're tackling production, use, and disposal. And then it syncs up nicely because I teach an online class on plastic pollution at Bennington College, and that forces me to stay current. Because anyone who has taught at any level, you know that it's terrifying if a student asks you a question and you don't know the answer, which <laughs> happens quite a bit. And I just say, I'll get back to you. And I do. But um, I take a lot of time and a lot of pride preparing for my class. And so I, I am on top of the latest developments. So there's some synergy there. That's really great. And and you, you can't say that it's growing slowly because as a board member, I see that it is growing rapidly and that you're having, you know, just an incredible amount of influence, not just in the, you know, the region where you are, which is the New England region, but across the country. Um, let's talk about what happened uh, this week at the, uh, the United Nations Conference, uh, the Environmental Assembly in Nairobi, Kenya. Was that exciting? Were you really thrilled that this was uh, that this actually was an issue that was addressed by the world leaders? Yes. I mean, this is very significant. This is the first ever attempted international agreement on plastic pollution. And just calling it plastic pollution, as opposed to the sanitized phrase of marine debris, is significant. Um, we have a lot of work to do because this is just a draft agreement that will be negotiated over the next two years. But what I'm excited about is it deals with every, you know, the whole life cycle of plastics, not just what do you do after 8 million to 15 million metric tons of plastic get into the ocean every year, but how do you prevent that? And it should take a hard look at the enormous environmental justice and health issues associated with plastic production in the United States that's mostly in Louisiana, Texas, and Appalachia. Um, I read the document, it is vague, so different people can read into it what they want. I was disappointed that it did not reject false solutions like plastic burning, known as chemical recycling. And in fact, there's some national reporting that it was the United States that worked really hard to make sure that the toxics reduction element of the plastics issue was removed from this agreement. Um, I can't say I'm surprised by that because of the enormous influence of the chemical lobby, but how terrible that the Biden administration, I would have expected this from the previous administration, but to have the Biden administration working to remove provisions to reduce the toxics element of the plastics issue is very disappointing. Remember, plastics are made from chemicals and ethane, a byproduct of hydrofracking. And if we wanna see an increase in the anemic 8.5% recycling rate of plastics, you've gotta get the toxics out because you don't want a circle of plastic. Yeah. People talk about a circular economy, but not if it's filled with heavy metals and yeah. benzene and, and other contaminants. Yeah, I mean, this is also true of the paper industry. I mean, we, you know, we work with a breast cancer researcher um, who's 
focus is BPA. And she says that people go out and they buy these recycled paper towels and recycled toilet paper and recycled, you know, all paper products and think that they're really doing something good for the environment. But at the same time, they're actually exposing themselves to biologically active amounts of BPA because BPA gets into the into the paper waste okay. stream, right? The re paper recycling waste stream, and they remake, you know, new products from this waste stream. And, you know, they contain some of these toxins. It would be exactly the same thing if they are, you know, taking out this toxics element in this, uh, in this treaty. This is not a, not a good thing. So let me just talk about some of, the, some of the toxins that are in plastics. I mean, some of the toxins that are in plastics are there forever. I mean, things like PFAS are in plastics. And that's a forever chemical, um, not to mention all the endocrine disrupting chemicals like phthalates and so on. So I guess they discussed all of this and decided that it would be overwhelming to uh, to take that into consideration because it's hard to find plastics that are not contaminated with toxic chemicals. Yeah, plastics have a lot of toxic chemicals and then they have a lot of additives, a lot of colorants, and that's why they don't lend themselves as a material to easy recycling. But I, I think uh, the United States worked to keep it out of the treaty because of pressure by interest groups like the American Chemistry Council. Mm -hmm. By the way, they're very satisfied with the outcome. With the treaty. Well, that's not yeah. good, right? No, that's a very bad sign. Now, that's a bad sign. Right. The good thing is this is not a final agreement. They will spend at least the next two years negotiating it. And so... Uh, think of that this is a very good outline that now has to have important details added. Judith, is this a is there money attached? I'm, I don't know anything about this conference, so forgive me. But on the behalf of our listeners who may also not know about it, is there money involved? Are governments contributing significant and, and reasonable amounts of money to affect some actual change? Yes, yes. There are no specific numbers, but there are provisions in this agreement that would provide funding for certain countries that need it. I mean, and then the other thing we could do that would actually have the most dramatic impact is tackle the international waste trade and stop exporting plastics from the United States and Europe to um, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, and now Africa, which is becoming a plastics dumping ground. So. Um, there are a lot of shipping companies that will transport plastic to other countries. A little bit is pulled out for recycling purposes. Most of it is just left as litter. And then when it rains, it gets into rivers and then the ocean. Um, getting a handle on the plastic waste trade is probably most one of the most significant things we, we need to do in the short term, like not even right. two years down the road this year. Right now, yeah. There's no question about that. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is former EPA Region 2 administrator and founder of the nonprofit Beyond Plastics, Judith Inc. You know, as with so many of these really, really difficult environmental problems, source reduction is where we where we really need to be. We need to stop producing it. So I know that um, that you're very involved right now. It's a very, very current and urgent issue for the state of New York to adopt um, an EPR program, which is you know producer responsibility, um, enhanced producer responsibility. And so, can you just talk about 
where that came from and uh, talk about Maine being the first in the nation to actually adopt this law. So extended producer responsibility is a great theory, but you have to get the details right. So right now, local governments are just flooded with waste that they need to manage, that they have no control over. Um, we're seeing more and more multi-material plastic packaging, for instance, that just doesn't have a market for recycling, especially in the baby food aisle of your supermarket. More and more plastic pouches, multi-material plastics, and it's just not fair to burden taxpayers and local governments with, with having to deal with all of this stuff. So the packaging companies, the brands, they have no skin in the game right now. Uh, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks, others can just make a decision to keep putting out non-reusable, non-recyclable virgin packaging and our solid waste problem gets worse and worse. So decades ago, various countries in Europe and Canada adopted extended producer responsibility law with mixed success. What it has been good at is providing funding for local recycling programs, which is certainly important, but where it has failed and where the main law also fails is it doesn't uh, prioritize or provide funding for waste reduction. We all know reduce, reuse, recycle, but reduce always gets left behind in the dust. Mm -hmm. So um, my organization, Beyond Plastics, along with a number of other groups, came together last summer. We drafted a model extended producer responsibility bill uh, that has already been introduced in Rhode Island, will soon be introduced in New York, and just in the nick of time, because our first woman governor in New York, who, who is terrific on a lot of issues, Governor Kathy Hochul, unfortunately has submitted a budget bill that includes um, a very weak extended producer responsibility provision. So we are rallying the troops in New York because we cannot um, have a weak, ineffective producer responsibility law in New York. And, it, and if you'd like, I can run through what are some of the key elements that we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. and this would hold true for for any state. I mean, we want every state. Is there a state in the United States that's doing it right? Do they have a, a, a good bill anywhere? Um, there's a good bill introduced in Rhode Island. And then in terms of actual laws, there are only two. You reference Maine and then also Oregon. But I think both of them are too weak. And, and one reason is because it puts the packaging industry in charge of solving the problem. These laws create what's called producer responsibility organizations, which is basically the companies that created the problem in the first, the first place, place right. are directed to come up with their own plans that maybe will get us to a higher recycling rate and typically do nothing on waste reduction. The way to think about this is, would we ask the fossil fuel industry to write their own plan to reduce greenhouse gases without numerical goals? So what the Beyond Plastics model bill does is puts right in the bill that uh, all packaging, this is not just plastic, all packaging and, and some paper, needs to be reduced, reused, refilled 
by 50% over 10 years. So it's, it's a step process. After you've reduced, reused, refilled one of those, what's left either recycled content requirement or readily recyclable. So for instance, a Keurig coffee pod would not count as recyclable because it really isn't. But a piece of cardboard would count as recyclable. So we are looking for substantial shifts. Basically think of this as design elements, environmental design elements for packaging, just like we have fuel efficiency standards for cars. We have appliance efficiency standards for refrigerators and washing machines. We need statutory reduction and recycling requirements in the law. So that's, that is a key element that's missing from Maine and Oregon, along with we don't give the keys to the electric car to the packaging industry. We don't think Starbucks and McDonald's are going to figure out how to do it right because they haven't so far. Third, we want to eliminate toxics from packaging. So we start with some of the most toxic uh, elements of packaging and we require them to be eliminated. Uh, we very specifically prohibit plastic burning in this bill because the, uh, the chemical industry has finally admitted that plastics recycling has been a failure uh, after decades of telling us just put all your single-use packaging in your recycling bin, which is a mistake. Now they have uh, the idea that they want to build what's called chemical recycling facilities, which is basically... Uh, plastic burning. And in 15 states, the chemical lobby has adopted, gotten new laws adopted that would exempt these facilities from some pivotal environmental laws and then also provide state subsidies. And even states like New York and New Jersey have bills introduced by Democrats that would exempt uh, plastic burning from some important environmental laws. So a good EPR bill does not allow for plastic burning. And um, finally, we want to see some taxpayer relief. So we use what's called an eco-modulated fee. Uh, if you eliminate packaging or if it's refillable, you don't pay any fee at all. If you make it from recycled content, you pay a, a, a much more modest fee. If it's recyclable, another modest fee. And if it's none of those, you're going to pay a lot. We don't feel like we have the political power to say you can't just put non-recyclable, non-recycled content, non-refillable on the market. So what we do is we make them pay a lot, like the real cost to get rid of this stuff. Um, acknowledging the whole uh, concept of environmental externalities. So that's what we need to see nationwide. Um, nothing serious is yet introduced in the Congress. So this is going to be state by state. The details really matter. You get one of these six elements wrong, you're not going to have a good program. And um, this is very active in many, many states. And we are, um, our, our back is against the wall because we're just not keeping up with the plastics and fossil fuel and chemical industry on this. 
So I have two questions. So um, so what happens if they do pass one of these poor laws that doesn't look at all the details and get it right? Right. So like Maine and Oregon. So they put in place the infrastructure for their new bill and off they go. So it's like it's years to turn these this moving train around. Right. So exactly. Yeah. It'll take five to 10 years before they realize it's not working. And so what happens is the plastic pollution problem and the overpackaging problem just gets worse. Right. Our, our environment is polluted and taxpayers pay more money for solid waste disposal. All right. So second question. So what kind of pressure do you think you can bring on the Starbucks, the Coca-Cola, the Dunkin Donuts, the, you know, the, all these these these, um, you know, fast food places where people run in, they get their thing and they run out and then it just either gets thrown away or thrown out the window of their car or whatever. How do they fit into this problem? Do they go back to the to their source where they get their packaging for all their stuff and say, hey, this is not working for us. You know, the communities are unhappy with this, right? They are unhappy with finding all of our styrofoam, you know, cups or whatever on the beach or in the in the pond or whatever. So how are you putting pressure on that sector? Well, that sector can do a lot and they have purposely chosen not to. So your listeners can't see this, but I'm holding a Starbucks um, coffee cup lid uh, that's used in Europe, which is made of cardboard fiber. So it's made from recycled content. If it gets littered, it will degrade and like staying around for a hundred years. And, and it can be recycled if it's, if it's not soiled. Starbucks is doing this in Europe. They're not doing it in the United States and they're not doing it because no one's making them do it. So I am not optimistic that companies are going to change on their own. There are little rays of sunshine here and there. For instance, Coke recently announced that by 2030, they want 25% of their beverage containers to be made from refillable uh, containers and and refundable. Um, So you, you would need a bottle bill, for instance, to get them all back. And rather than recycling the containers... They're saying, and there are loopholes in this, but they're saying they want 25% to be refilled. That was years in the making. I think they have one person working on it internationally. We'll see if it really happens. These voluntary pledges are often ignored once the ink is dry on the press release. I'm a former federal regulator. So the way I solve problems is by helping to pass new laws at the local and state level primarily, and then strong enforcement of those laws. Because that's fairer because all the companies have to comply and it's fairer to local taxpayers. We don't need a giant breakthrough in engineering to solve the plastic pollution problem. We know that we can have reusables that Products, there are many products that just you can get rid of the exterior packaging altogether. Um, or if you can't reduce, refill, reuse, make it from recycled content and make it easily recyclable. So that means paper, cardboard, glass, metal. These things have been around for a long time. Yeah, um, long we, time. 
We don't need some big algae breakthrough or all the people who call me about hemp. Okay, that might work in the future, but we have solutions right now. Judith, you said that the uh, that Starbucks is using this recyclable top in Europe. What is the European law that's requiring them to do that? And is that a model for us? I believe it's an extended producer responsibility bill um, that has teeth. Yeah, this is from France. France actually has decent laws on the books that go much, much further than some of the American proposals we're seeing. I mean, I'm assuming that they're not doing it because French people are more are more interested in helping the environment, or maybe they are. I mean, it's, it, it, I'd be curious to know what their reason is for doing that and whether or not that's something we could use to our benefit. And why aren't they doing it here? Um, you know, Starbucks has made all sorts of promises to reduce their, their waste, and, and they haven't. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation um, and just we really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. So let's get down and dirty and um, and talk about what's happening in New York State and why it's so critical for people to get involved right now on this. Well, if New York does a weak extended producer responsibility bill, it will be exported to other states. So what happens in New York is vitally important. The good thing is New York has an existing bottle bill. It's 40 years old this year. And so um, we are pushing two policies. One is to expand the New York bottle bill to cover more containers like iced tea and lemonade and liquor and wine, and also to finally up the deposit from a nickel to a dime. And there's this informal recycling economy of people who go around, thousands of people, picking up empty containers, making sure it's not littered, recycling it, and they deserve a raise. And if we could up the deposit from a nickel to a dime, their income will double. And these are people who are economically struggling. I I worked on the original bottle bill when I was a Nightburg student activist. And we always thought that high school kids or Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops would collect um, empty containers from the streets That was the Reagan administration. I didn't realize it would be a major source of income for people who are economically struggling, but it is. There's a name for this job and they're they're called canners. I I also call them redeemers. Redeemers. Yeah, that's That's even better. better. I love redeemers. Sometimes, you know, we have a lot of canners or redeemers in our community. Uh, We have a very mixed community, economically diverse. And, you know, because we know that if they take them to the, you know, the stop and shop recycling area, which is where they go in this community, it breaks it up into a million tiny pieces. And they actually do have a a fairly organized recycling stream that comes from that machine and goes into, you know, probably I don't know if it's 100 percent, but it's uh, it's probably more likely to be recycled. You're absolutely right, Patty. It's a much higher recycling rate if you have a nickel deposit on it as opposed to your curbside recycling program. According to the Think Tank Container Recycling Institute, for instance, if an aluminum can has a nickel deposit on it, the recycling rate is 78%. No deposit deposit on an aluminum can, the recycling rate is 36%. Mm. And it's, it's similar for glass and PET plastic. So bottle bills work. So what we're doing in New York 
is um, trying to expand the bottle bill. It's a perfect example of extended producer responsibility. And then for everything else in packaging world, we need a strong extended producer responsibility bill. Unfortunately, the governor's bill is not strong. The Senate bill is not strong. So all eyes are on the assembly uh, to give us a bill that would actually solve the problem as opposed to this bureaucratic, unaccountable system that will take five or more years to finally determine is not working. We don't have that time. Every day that it rains hard, we have more plastic going into rivers and oceans. And as our friend Bill McKibben has said, winning slowly is actually losing. <laughs> and that's what's happening on the plastic pollution issue. We are winning here and there, a plastic bag ban that is statewide, a polystyrene ban, but there's still a massive amount of plastics that is contaminating our marine environment and our bodies. I mean, we really haven't had time to touch on the health impacts, but there was an Italian peer-reviewed scientific study a little over a year ago that documented for the first time uh, health researchers found uh, microplastics in the human placenta on both the maternal side and the fetal side. That should give people pause. So Judith, how can our listeners make a difference here? Get on the phone, whatever they have to do. Give us the, the bullet points. I think the most important thing is for listeners to contact their state legislators because uh, this is happening at the state level. So if you're from New York, your state senator, your state assembly member, Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, call them on the telephone because time is short. We don't even have time for letters and, and say you want a strong extended producer responsibility bill just like the one being introduced by Assemblymember Stephen Engelbright, he's the chair of the Assembly Environmental Committee, and you wanna expand the bottle bill. Let's raise the deposit to a dime, cover more materials. So two, a two-pronged message. Um, also go to beyondplastics.org. We will be updating information there. Um, we don't have a lot of time because the state budget may will be done by April 1. These bills may or may not be in the state budget. The governor definitely wants it in the budget. The Senate wants it in the budget. I don't know if the assembly does or not. So our immediate deadline is April 1. So not a lot of time. And then other states uh, take our model bill and get it introduced. Um, if you get in, talk, in touch with us beyond plastics at bennington.edu is our email. Uh, we can connect you uh, with people in your state who may be interested in working on this. And we also have this new initiative of setting up new Beyond Plastics groups at the local level and affiliates. So we'd love to talk to your listeners about that. So it's all on our website, beyondplastics.org, or email us at beyondplastics at B-E-N-N-I-N-G-T-O-N dot E-D-U. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been former EPA Region 2 administrator and founder of the nonprofit organization Beyond Plastics, Judith Inc. 
Right now, it's time for the Green Street Info Bits. These are items we pull from our files on a whole variety of issues we've covered here on Green Street and in our work at Grassroots Environmental Education. The first is from our Green Pets file called Keeping Pets and Kids Safe. This is the time of year when ticks and fleas can become a problem for family pets, but commercial pest collars can be even more of a problem, both for pets and the kids in your household. Most flea and tick collars contain synthetic pyrethroid pesticides, which have been linked to endocrine disruption and other serious health problems. Kids playing with pets can easily come in contact with these collars, and their natural hand-to-mouth behavior puts them at special risk for accidental ingestion of pesticides. Herbal collars are safe and effective alternatives. They're available at many pet and health food stores, and you can also protect your pet by adding yeast or garlic powder to its food. Bon appetit, Fido. From the books department, The Greens Cookbook. Author and vegetarian chef Deborah Madison founded The Greens Restaurant in San Francisco in 1979, and her first, and some say her best, cookbook grew from the recipes she perfected there. Restaurant food tends to be more complicated than what you make at home. That's why we go out to eat, says Madison. What was most important to me in writing the Greens cookbook was that the recipes succeed in capturing the flavors the reader has tasted at the restaurant. Okay, so some of the recipes may be a little complex, but they are seriously delicious and worthwhile, especially as spring develops and our farmer's markets are filled with all the fresh ingredients needed. The Greens cookbook, available from your local bookstore. From the Green Living Department, this is called Clean and Green. Supermarket shelves in the cleaning aisle are packed with familiar bright-colored, strong-smelling products. Years of advertising have taught us that glass cleaners are blue, scouring powders turn things white, and a lemon scent means clean. The truth is that many of these products are wreaking havoc on our family's health and the environment contaminating our indoor air as well as municipal water supplies, ponds, rivers, and bays where they kill aquatic animals and disrupt the hormones of fish and other creatures. The good news, there are lots of great new products to help you clean your home without destroying the earth in the process. Products from Ecover, 7th Generation, BioClean, and others are available in many supermarkets. A new product line from Meliora, is available through the internet. Listeners to Green Street may recall our interview with Kate Jacobus, the founder of Meliora, a few weeks ago. If you don't see products that you want at your store, ask them to get it for you. Use your own pocketbook to bring about change. From the Green Kids Department, it's in the bag. Microwave popcorn is fast, easy, and convenient. A nutritious snack, especially compared to the sweet, sugary snacks kids often clamor for. But there's a problem. Along with the popcorn, your kids will be ingesting chemicals called fluorotelomers, which break down into perfluorooctanic acid, or PFOA, a suspected carcinogen. According to recent studies, microwave popcorn bags have more of these chemicals than any other kind of food packaging. The chemical creates a grease-resistant coating within the bag. And scientists suspect that high cooking temperatures may facilitate the migration of these chemicals into the popcorn. It's estimated that microwave popcorn may account for more than 20% of the average PFOA levels measured in American residents. So get yourself some organic popcorn, grab a saucepan, put two tablespoons of olive oil and a small tab of butter in the pan, add enough popcorn to cover the bottom of the pan, cook on medium-high heat, shaking occasionally until the popping stops for more than a few seconds, 
Add salt if you want and enjoy. By the way, the butter in the pan will make cleanup a breeze. From the Green Living Department, Flower Power. When it comes to celebrating an anniversary, recognizing a special milestone, or just making up for bad behavior, it's hard to beat a bouquet of flowers. But recent media reports of exploited workers and heavy pesticide use in the commercial flower industry have made it more difficult to order flowers without guilt. But it's getting easier than ever to order flowers from farms which respect the health and well-being of workers. Buying organic flowers supports local community agriculture, helps protect workers from exposure, and keeps pesticides out of the environment. You can purchase organic flowers at Whole Foods Market, or better yet, ask your local florist to carry them. That's going to do it for our Green Street Show today. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, you can always hear it again at our website, greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for program alerts and give us your comments on the show. We'd love to hear from you, good or bad, so give us a shout, greenstreetradio.com. Special thanks to our guest, Judith Ink and our assistant producer, Ellen Weiniger. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.